started hiring these really smart vice presidents to help them run the company. They come to me and they say, well, these people aren't doing what I want them to do. The entrepreneur would bring me in to help their team develop and become a team. What they didn't realize is that they were the problem. That's where the CEO coaching has come in place because it's them not letting go. Welcome to Personal Finance Cat, where I share my personal take on personal finance. All right, Scott, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Of course. So you have a very impressive resume. You are a PhD in education and you have your own company, which seems to do a bunch of things. Can you tell us about what inspired you to pursue this advanced degree? Ah, well, there's a couple of stories involved in that. Um, the first one was I had six kids uh, ourselves. Oh. And, and when one of them got into college, <clears throat> he told me that um, I had it so much easier when I was in school mm. because, you know, and I said, well, what are you talking about? The only difference is there's 25 years more history to learn, right? I said, plus you had Google. We had to go to a library to, mm -hmm. to go learn. So I made a challenge to him that, that I would go back to school. I was going to take more classes than he was taking and I was going to get a better grade point average than he got all while I was raising six kids and running my business. And, uh, and he accepted the challenge. I ended up doing well, and I, and I loved it. I loved going back to school. So a few years later, um, I got a, an opportunity to go to an executive MBA program uh, at, at UC Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And it was a really interesting, interesting group of folks there. I was the only entrepreneur in the room. I was the only person who actually was paying their own way to get in. Whereas their companies were paying them, and and I, it, it was just such a great experience. I decided to to continue to go further, and I didn't really need the MBA because I've already been in business and done all that kind of stuff. So I started looking for well, maybe I'll go into psychology, and then I found this leadership program, um, which at at Chapman University, which I ended up going to. And uh, I thought it was really strange that the leadership program was in the College of Education, as opposed to the business school or the political science school or, or places like that. And, and um, at first, I was kind of disappointed in that. But the more I got into it, the more I learned the differences between how people see the world differently. Like that, I came from the business world and typically fairly... Um, conservative group, right? So if you think it on the conservative, the political scale, business people are more conservative than the educators are. I got into this program and I was sitting in a room with people that were proclaimed socialist and even communist. And, wow. and, and I got to hear from their point of view, what we we're talking about when we were talking about leadership. And, and what I realized was we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about leading people but we're just seeing it from different points of view. So I got a chance to see it from a different point of view as well. And it ended up being really profound for me to go in that direction. Yeah, I, I learned a lot from being with a group of people that were not like me. They yeah. were in fact polar opposites in, in, in many ways. Right. Yeah, that's great. I applaud you for doing that and appreciating the experience. And I think one thing you noted in your website is that I think you got your degree at 60 at age 60. I finished my doctorate when I was 60. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I, 
I tried to, when I went to Chapman at, at about 55, I tried to talk myself into the doctorate program. I didn't have the master's. I'd been through this mm -hmm. executive MBA thing, but they didn't count that. And uh, so I figured I could talk my way and they, they just laughed at me. They said, nope. So it made me go through their master's program in leadership, which is a two-year program. I actually did it in one. Um, yeah. I put it, I did it in 11 months because I wanted to get into the doctorate program. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's where I belonged, but I had to follow, I had to follow their rules. Okay. So I, I kind of blew through. I, I didn't waste the time. I mean, I really studied, but I was taking, you know, four uh, graduate school courses per semester plus summer school plus, you know, and then for, to, to get that all done in, in a year, there were 10, 11 courses that we had to take. And it was intense. It was a lot of reading, a lot more reading than I'd ever done in my life. Wow. Okay. So you did that while running your business still, or was it a yeah. full-time? Oh, wow. No, it was, okay. I was, I was running a business and then, um, uh, I, I, I did a lot of the studying while I was at my company. So I, my presence was there, but mm -hmm. some of the tasks that I should have been doing, other people were taking, taking on as well, because really finishing up education really is, it's full-time work. Right. Um, oh yeah, for sure. For sure. So, so I was in, I was present in the business, but, but other folks were doing the work and I was, I was there and available to them. Got it. Got it. And what was the business that you were running at the time? That was a telecommunications company. We, we okay. sold telecommunications services to mostly to hospitals, but to some universities. So, okay. um, we'd resell other people's services. We had some hardware of our own and, uh, we actually did a really cool satellite, uh, communication system where we would have a backup. We'd put a satellite on top of a hospital for say, let's say, and if they had all their communications were shut down, we could actually make phone calls um, inbound as well as outbound calls for them. Interesting. So was it like, um, like a B2B kind of business? Uh, absolutely B2B. Yeah. yeah. And then you were a reseller of telecom businesses or you we, we resold some people's services, but then we had some of our own, products as well. So what we call it was a suite of services that we'd offer kind of a one stop okay. shop to make things a lot easier for for our clients. Okay. okay. I think I saw on your website that you had several other businesses prior to starting yeah. your business. Can you talk about some of those businesses as well? Yeah, kind of that was actually my second telecommunication business. I, I okay. went in um, when I was about 29 or 30 years old, I went into business with a friend. Uh, he actually hired me as a consultant. And I talked my way into a partnership with that, and 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 that was a really niche telecom business. They were he was in the payphone business, okay. so putting public telephones out, you know, across the country, mm -hmm. and we did that for nine nine, I guess about nine years together, and and learned a lot there. Learned a lot about the industry, but really learned a lot about human nature, and uh, recognized that having a partnership was difficult. Right, mm -hmm. you've got. Um, it, it's, it's as difficult as having a marriage only yeah. without the romance to solve the fights, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so <laughs> partnerships are tough. Yeah, yeah. No, that I was the business that. before that. And prior to that, um, coming through up through college, I, I owned and operated a pool cleaning service. Oh, and okay. so I was out in backyards, sitting out, getting tan and making money while I was uh, in between classes so that I can go play baseball. Wow. So you've been pretty entrepreneurial since college, it sounds like, right? 
since yeah since college i've been entrepreneurial i've had a couple corporate jobs um but i didn't enjoy that life i liked the entrepreneurial i liked having the the weight of the world on my shoulders i liked having that 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 growling in the pit of the stomach and mm-hmm. which is an entrepreneurial's kind of daily life yep yep interesting so. and when did you realize that that you're an entrepreneurial type I realized it when I had employers who kept me down. Mm. Who wouldn't let me explore, who wouldn't let my 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 genius, my the thing that was good, you know, the thing that I thought was good at um go too far. There was a lot of uh, back, back when I was growing up and and getting into that that world it was it was dictated by a lot of command and control leaders. Like mm-hmm. they made the rules you followed them and you and here's what we're going to tell you what to do and you go do it and it's just not my style to to one tell people what to do or two be told what to do all the time I want, so I wanted to to own and operate my own business now I know there's a lot of people that that like operating their own businesses or thinking they do leave the corporate world and not but it's not for everybody it's it's not there is the stresses of entrepreneurship are different everyone has stress but these are different making payroll people's lives depending upon you um trying to figure out how to balance between the customer and the employee and and your home life you know the, the spouse and the kids and all of those kind of things so when when people would people ask me well you think i should quit my job and you know start out on my own The answer is it depends. One, do you understand these things are going to happen? And two, depending on your situation at home, do you have a supportive partner at home as well because it is a different you don't do a 9 to 5 job. It's just not like that. Right. Especially right. in the startup stage. Yeah, so I think that's a good point about kind of the support at home, right? Because I feel like being an entrepreneur is not a 9 to 5 and it's like 24/7 basically, right? So yes, that is you have to have an understanding partner at home but you know even having the 9 to 5 i feel like nowadays it's not common at least in the professional world a lot of the times these jobs are very demanding it's not just like you can go home and unplug if you want to advance what i've been seeing is you have to really put in the extra hours what do you think about that is that sort of a, more of a reason to go into entrepreneurship or uh, i actually think that's changing and i think the pandemic helped create those changes or the thought process behind those changes when you know people talk about work life balance and i don't think there's a work life balance especially been out for work is your life um but i also believe that quality of life matters if the work that you're doing is something you love great you could you can be an entrepreneur cuz it is a full time thing it is all consuming mm-hmm. but if it's just if it's a way just to make a living I don't recommend I don't recommend entrepreneurship. I don't recommend starting your own. Take the paycheck, take the white picket fence and, and figure out how to be happy. Mm-hmm. I, and I do think when I talk about the pandemic changing things, people have they got used to working from home and they didn't want to come back to the office, right? Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And more than that though, the generational changes. Like so my my generation we were cradle to grave kind of jobs and you'd put your nose to the grindstone and all that. and what we taught our children was that that might not be the best quality of life so we actually taught 
these younger generations that there's more to life than just work. Right. And yet we, as the people running these businesses right now, are complaining about their attitudes. Well, <laughs> where'd those come from? They, they, they came from how we raise these, these young people. So yeah. I think that people are getting much more into having a purpose. Uh, everyone needs to make a living. I get that. So money still is important. I can't say that it's not. But, but I think the younger people now are looking much more for purpose and a place that they can believe in. And that provides them some flexibility. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think flexibility is a key right now. Yeah. So if that describes you, do not become an entrepreneur. Okay. There is no flexibility, not till years down the line. Mm -hmm. You see these business owners, they get to take off a month here and go here and take off for this meeting and do all those things. That's That doesn't happen in the first several years of an entrepreneur's mm -hmm. life. I mean, it's, it's, nose, it's nose down, get it, getting it going. Now, later, when you start reaping some of the benefits and you've trained people mm -hmm. uh, to replace you, then, then you actually have some more freedom. But it doesn't happen for a while. In fact, what I found with most of my entrepreneurial friends, that journey is about nine years before they get to that space where they feel like they can take a day off or they feel a little success is hit. Wow, interesting. Okay. That's a very different perspective. Some of my friends who are entrepreneurs, they've done sort of the hard work, similar to what you were saying, but it's almost like they can figure out a way to more efficiently make money because getting a paycheck, I feel like always have a limit. You say you have six kids. Yeah. I just feel like a normal paycheck is very hard to support six kids. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe I'm in the no, middle. I, <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think the way the, the economy has gone in the past several years, it is difficult. Of these, mm -hmm. of these six kids, only three of them can afford to buy a house, right? Uh, and the others are struggling. I've still got one. He's 25 years old living at, living at home. Okay. And because it is so expensive and so hard to launch, so hard to get mm -hmm. out. And, and you're right. A regular paycheck just doesn't provide those opportunities. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's a balance. But, 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 but this is really important. I think work, for me in particular, work is more than just a paycheck. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. More than just. Sure, I need enough money to live, but money is the secondary thing in, in how I decide to do the work that I do. Got it. It's the, it's the, am I fulfilling my purpose? Am I getting what I need out of this? And with this current company, which uh, the last seven years I've been doing executive coaching and teaching teams how to uh, leadership and trust and communications and building teams and working in small groups work on that kind of stuff, that suits my purpose. It, I actually, when I get done with a session, a one-on-one -on -one or a one to one to a small group session, I actually get the adrenaline rush, like it's a high. It's like it's my drug. And that's great. To me, that's more important than what they just paid me. Yeah. yeah. Don't get me wrong. I like getting paid. Right. <laughs> but it's it's the it's the fulfilling the purpose that is much more important these days. Yeah. Cool. So let's talk about that, right? How did you get into your current it sounds like it's a executive coaching business, but you also mm -hmm. do almost like a team building sort yeah. of uh, events, right? So can you talk about your current business? Sure. Well, it started with, I was in a group called Entrepreneur Organization. Mm -hmm. And um, we had, and in that group, these, these small groups of people, eight, 10 people, they go away once, once a year on a retreat, two, three day retreat. And there's supposed to be some content in that. It's not supposed to be all just golf and swimming and fun, although that's part of it, right? Mm -hmm. 
there's supposed to be some content that that's going to be taught. And I had a couple of groups come to me and say, "You're really good at this teaching thing. Can you develop a program for us to to, to do two half days at this retreat, this offsite retreat?" And I thought it was brilliant. It was wonderful. Like thinking about it, <clears throat> I get to deliver some content, but but I'm not teaching and lecturing. The, the way that we do it is more um, based on adult learning, which is experiential kind of learning. And it's a, we call it a reverse classroom where I'll ask a few questions. I'll give some context, ask a few questions, and get out of the way. And the teachers are actually the people that are in the room. It's a blast. So I explain to people, like, here's what's happening to me. So I get to go to these really cool places. They're usually someplace on a beach, like where you do these retreats, right? So you get to go to some really cool, you mentioned Costa Rica as we were starting. Yeah. <laughs> we had retreats in Costa Rica. It's just a great place. So you get to go to a really cool place, ask a few questions, listen to all of their answers and learn from all these really smart people. And then at the end, they do two things. First, they take me on vacation, but now they're, now they're saying thank you for bringing this out of us. And then they're paying me. Like, what a dream job. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So that's how that's actually how it started, and then um, my experience in teaching in the university level, uh, small group communications and business and professional communications with, and then an entrepreneurial course is what I taught, um, led me to develop my own courses that I could bring into the corporate environment where we would teach in the rooms. And the first one is actually one I did my dissertation on, which was developing trust in a cross-functional workplace, meaning. The accounting department was there. The sales department was there. The marketing people were there, operations people. And we went through this process, this communication process during these 13 weeks that we were together. And we measured the level of trust that they had for the group prior to. We did the intervention, which was a course. And then at the end of it, we measured the, we measured the levels of trust again with that same group. And they shot through the roof. People that think differently, right? The, Sales department and the credit department, they don't think alike, right? Yeah. They, they, <laughs> the level of trust that they had, all based on sitting in the same room and learning how to communicate a little bit differently was just like really inspirational. It was great. Mm -hmm. So that took me on the course to start building more courses. So I probably have eight, cor eight different courses right now that we teach cool. uh, in addition to the executive one-on-one -on -one coaching that I do with, with the C-level folks. That sounds great. So what kind of um, companies do you usually help with? Are they small companies, mid-sized, large? They, they tend to be small, but not too small because okay. it's not cheap. It's, it's not inexpensive to, to bring in someone from the outside and, and even take 10 people off their job for 90 minutes a week for six, 12 weeks, right? Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not inexpensive. So a small right. emerging company really can't afford um, this kind of this kind of effort. Um, so I most of my clients range in the fifty to two hundred and fifty employee range. Okay. Okay. I've had I've had uh, some success with with one Fortune five hundred company, but it was at a divisional level. It wasn't it wasn't at the C level. Um, Got it. So, but mostly the fifty to two hundred and fifty employee companies. Okay. Yeah. So I would say they're like mid size. Yeah, they've gotten past their entrepreneurial entrepreneurial stage. In fact, that's how I ended up getting hired. These right. entrepreneurs um, that have grown their company to a certain level, you know, between five and ten million dollars, mm -hmm. and now they started hiring these 
really smart vice presidents to help them run the company. Mm -hmm. Well, come, they come to me and they say, well, these people aren't doing what I want them to do. So mm -hmm. they, the entrepreneur would bring me in to help their team develop and become, become a team. And um, uh, what they didn't realize is that they were the problem. That's mm -hmm. where the that's where the CEO coaching has come in place right. because it's them not letting go of yep. the reins. These smart people want to do what smart people do, right? Mm -hmm. Yet they don't they don't feel that that space. So that that teaching the courses turned into the coaching of the executives afterwards because the executive needed help as well. That makes sense, yeah. Because I worked for large companies, and I don't think they've done this kind of retreats, which sounds really, really helpful. Right? I think yeah. the companies have evolved to be too large to to have that kind of scale to make it meaningful. Because like each organization is gigantic. Maybe they do it at a very high level, and that was just yeah. I think I think it can be done in levels, and I think it should be done in levels. For instance, the the C level executives should be in the same room doing something mm -hmm. together. Yeah. The people that work for them should be either departmentally working together in these offsite kind of retreats to figure out what their strategic plan is going to look like for their department, or better yet, getting all the vice presidents together in a room and mm -hmm. working through some of the communication issues. Yeah. I mean, when you look at it, organizations are set up in silos for that vice president to be successful at whatever they are in charge of. Mm -hmm. Well, the real goal of the company is for the company to be successful, not one of the pillars being successful. Yeah. And if they're not talking to each other and, and understanding the problems that this department has versus this department has, all we're going to do is what's best for us, best for me, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of what's best for us as a whole. Yeah. So I think if the larger companies are not doing these kind of offsites, they should be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How do you usually develop these client relationships? Is it through word of mouth or? Often it's, often it's word of mouth. Um, okay. I'll give you an example of my last client. There was a, a organization in Minnesota that was, um, uh, the partners were at odds. They just, they got to the spot where they didn't even want to be in the same room together. Mm. Oh, wow. And uh, one of my buddies who happened to know about them said, you need to talk to Scott. He can solve this for you. He mm. can, and it's not me solving it. It is me providing the space for them to solve whatever their issue is. Right. Okay. So, um, I'm really good at dealing with conflict. I'm I'm really good at uh, mitigating conflict, and in fact, finding the positive that comes through conflict. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I have a reputation for that, and I get I get referred to folks for that. The other thing I get referred to quite often is for communication, getting people to be able to learn how to speak to each other. Yep. I, I just read something the other day that that said, hey, if you wanna if you want to save money on Christmas presents, when everyone comes together for Thanksgiving, talk about politics. <laughs> right? And and I think just the opposite. I think we should be able to talk about our differences. Remember, here I was a capitalist sitting in a room with a bunch of socialists learning from each other and it worked. Mm, yeah. I took the time to listen to them. When I did that, then they gave me the time for to listen to me. Mm -hmm. Now they didn't agree with me, nor did they have to. But having a little, enough mutual respect for each other to say we can see the world from different angles and it still can be okay. Yeah. 
So how did you develop those skills, conflict resolution and all these skills that you teach in these retreats? Did you learn that from your PhD or did you develop them over time with your various experiences? All of the above. Um, specifically, conflict resolution didn't come from school. That that's not yeah, what they would, so. that's not what they would teach in school, mm-hmm. or know how to teach in school. Even right. the conflict resolution, because being involved in people's conflicts, being involved in my own conflicts, and recognizing first of all, I could have done that better. Right, no matter what that conflict is, right? It, there's always something I can do better. Mm-hmm. So starting to look, and, and that's kind of my coaching philosophy is no matter what the other person's doing, what's your part in this, mm-hmm. right? The self-reflective portion. So that came from a lot of personal experience, the, the conflict resolution piece. The, the learning to develop trust actually came from, came through my studies in, in the doctorate program, because that's what I was studying is developing trust and trust in a cross-functional workplace. Mm-hmm. And we came up with a methodology, and it's actually a theory that, that we've proven to be accurate, called the circle of trust, where we can teach people to trust not only faster, but deeper. Mm-hmm. Learn how to have trust with each other faster and deeper. And when you think about it, trust is usually developed like this. You do what you say you're going to do, and then you do it again, and then you do it again, and then you do it again and again and again, and I start to trust you. Mm-hmm. That's how trust has been developed for, you know, millennial, yep. forever, right? Uh, and, and ours is just a four-step process. It's really simple. And it is, it, it's called the circle of trust. And it starts with respect. And this is not the type of respect that I learned growing up. My dad told me, respect is earned, it's not given. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of respect that I give. Give freely to others for their humanity. There's, for their recognizing that there's all people have value right? That level of respect. Start there. The next level comes from the Stephen Covey concept of listening to understand, which is as opposed to listening to reply. So if you ask me a question, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to give you an answer, right? And then based on my answer, you're going to reply to me. And that's just how we, that's how humans do that. Well, listening and understand goes a little bit deeper. You have to do all the active listening things that you're supposed to do, nod your head, paraphrase, agree, whatever. But it's a little bit deeper is to try to understand as much as I can from your perspective what you're saying, not my interpretation of what you're having to say. And that takes and it takes time to be able to do that. And I found that the greatest tool to learn how to listen to understand is when you give me an answer, an answer to a question, I ask you another question based on that same answer. Mm. So I really try to get to your why, to what's important to you. What's the real meat of this conversation? So respect, listen, understand. The third stage in the cycle is called share from experience. This came directly from entrepreneur organization. They had a, they had a, uh, a methodology in their small groups that they called Gestalt Language Protocol. All that meant is you don't give advice. Mm. Now, I can share from, so you tell a story about something that's happening in your life and rather than saying, oh, here's what you should do. Here's mm-hmm. what I would do, right? You'd say, huh, something like that happened to me. It's different, but, but similar, but here's how it felt. Here's what I did and here's how it felt. So sharing from my experience as opposed to telling you what to do. Mm-hmm. The greatest thing I did in this whole educational process that I learned is to take the word should out of my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have no idea what you should do. 
I don't have your experience. I don't have your background. I don't have the consequences that you're going to face. Pretty arrogant of me to tell you what you should do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've had some experiences. I can tell you about them. And here's what happened to me. And here's the context those are in. And those become helpful to people. But for me to say, oh, all you should do is this or that is in my my world wrong it's it's arrogant it is it is not helpful and what ends up happening is when you don't take my advice i end up presenting you for it <laughs> so why bother mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah so, start with respect listen to understand share from experience and then the fourth part we call deliver on the promise which is the old school way meaning doing what you say you're going to do and yeah. doing it again and again and again and what we found is that when you've just gone through these that cycle three different times with somebody, we can start to develop this different level of respect and therefore trust, which will turn into a relationship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's a lot faster and it's a lot deeper. Yeah, that is excellent. I wish a lot of people would know that to not give their two cents. I've just encountered just very recently an experience where someone that is a common friend and you know she's facing this difficult situation and we're having dinner and everybody's giving their advice and i was like ah, wait a minute like this person can decide on their own right like they don't need they're grown up yeah they're but, grown up <laughs> I, I wish pe more people know you know take the shoot out of your vocabulary and, and and here's the other half of that is mm -hmm. that i'm telling you my story not to get your advice because I need my story heard. These people, your friend at, at the dinner, she yeah. needed to be heard. That's all she needed. Exactly. She doesn't yeah. need or even want me to solve her problems for her. Right, right. She knows what's best in her life. Now, it might be a little cloudy because of the circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. And so this sharing from experience piece might help, might be helpful. Mm -hmm. But the most helpful portion is for me to spend the time to listen to her and to really try to understand what it is that she's going through. Yeah, and I think there was a TED Talk that I listened to a while ago that was also talking about a similar thing, which is, you know, people don't want to hear your two cents, right? Unless they specifically ask you. Otherwise, don't do that. But even when, even when they've asked me, I've learned to do something first before I give my advice. Mm -hmm. The first thing that I, that I do, so employees will come into me and they'll say, hey, we got a problem. What do you think we ought to do? My first mm -hmm. response always anymore didn't used to be but now it is what do you think mm. like what do you think well it goes back to that old that old proverb about teaching a person to fish instead of giving them a fish right mm -hmm. getting people to think they may not have the answer sometimes i hear this uh the response is well i don't know that's why i came to you okay mm -hmm. great go think about it when you have something come on back and let's talk about it if i want to hear their wheels turning I want to see what they're thinking about. They could be way off base, and that's fine, but at least they're participating in the process right now. And that now I can help course correct mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. rather than just telling somebody what to do. Yeah. Yep. When you get down to it, nobody wants to be told what to do. Yeah, exactly. Not even your kids. They don't want to be told what to do. <laughs> Especially <right>? my kids. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Who wants to be told what to do? No. Mm -hmm. They want to be heard. People need to be heard and they need to be seen and they need to be feel like they're part of the process. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think that's our job as leaders is to find a way that I'm no longer needed. 
And I can only do that with whatever succession plan I'm talking about. And the succession plan that I talk about is to help build people and their confidence that they can solve these problems for themselves. Yeah. So maybe let's talk about your book because I think it's very related to what we've been talking sure. about so far. I think the book is titled, I Thought I Was a Good Leader. I Thought I Was a Leader. I Thought um, I Was a Leader. Was the yes. of the book. Because all my life I'd been in leadership positions, whether it was in mm -hmm. sports, I was the captain or in, in the in the businesses, I was the boss or and, and, and thought I was good at that until I realized that my style was no different than what was taught to me, which is this command and control style mm -hmm. of leadership, which is not something that's going to be working in, in the future. Um, it's worked in the past, kind of, right? Mm -hmm. We're able to get so far with this command and control. You, the smartest person in the room it dictates what happens, and and then, but you're limited to only what that person's thinking, not mm -hmm. all of us. So I've got a I've got a philosophy that I truly believe in. No, no matter how smart I think I am, we are smarter than me. Mm -hmm. I need to listen to the collective. I need to listen to what other people have to say. It doesn't mean I always have to agree with them, but it means I have to listen to them because I'm going to get smarter. There's several things that are going to happen. I'm going to get more information, which makes me smarter. And two, it draws people into the conversation so that they feel connected to the organization. Mm -hmm. Whether this organization is a family or a business, it doesn't matter. The more you listen to your children, the more connected they're going to be. The more you listen to your employees, the more connected they're going to be. We've got a big problem right now in, in the world with turnover. Mm -hmm. 25 to 50% turnover rates are still happening ever since the pandemic hit, right? And, and I guarantee this, that the more we make people feel part of something, the less likely they are going to be leaving. Mm -hmm. They want to be connected. So why not get smarter and make and allow people to feel connected so that they stay and help my company even more? It's a real simple process. Yeah, yeah. Not easy, but it's very simple. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Does it apply to large companies as well? You Absolutely, think? applies. So what's the difference between a what's similar between a big company and a and a small company? Dealing with people. Yeah, for sure. Do, do people at a large company think different than people at a small company? Nope. They're still people. They're still human beings mm -hmm. that have their own wants, needs, desires, lifestyles, all those things as well. So can this work in a large company? Absolutely. But a large company has bureaucracies and multiple layers that we have to get through through management to order to understand and learn this. Now, it's got to be it's got to be an initiative from the top. The top has to decide this is how we're going to operate, but it's got to be supported by the bottom as well. Mm -hmm. and, and it is more difficult in a large company because of these layers of bureaucracy in a small entrepreneurial company where you have CEO, bunch of people in the middle and then the lower level. I've only got three levels. Mm -hmm. That is no question about it. Um, however, it's still possible in the large company. There has to be a curiosity that this might work and a willingness of the participants to make it work. Yeah, because I mean, the reason why I asked that was because a lot of times people say if you're kind of an employee in a big company, you're a tiny cog in a huge machine, right? Sure. So part of what you were saying, you want to have people feel like they are involved in the process. Like whatever you do, 
as a cog is just so trivial to the whole machine, you know? So Well, that's why I say it's got to start from the top. And, yeah. and the top could be the top of your department. It could be just your division manager. It doesn't have to be the CEO mm -hmm. because we can get this group operating properly. But I think if it starts at the C-level, right, and, mm -hmm. and, the, and the thought process that we want to be inclusive and we want people to feel welcome and we want people to feel wanted and we want people to enjoy their lives, not just produce widgets, Yep. CEO's got to start that. Mm -hmm. But if the CEO doesn't, even me, my, my little department, my, my little department over here that does the accounting, let's say, I can do that as a leader. I can create that environment as a leader. And then people become loyal to me and my department. And if mm -hmm. I can make that help swim upstream, then I would do that. Certainly. But I think it's a lot easier if it starts from the top. We talked about the circle of trust. And you mentioned that there are other courses that you produced over time. Are there other sort of key principles that you try to embed in your courses or yeah. these retreats and so forth? So I've, I've developed it. There's been, there's leadership theories out there about mm -hmm. servant leadership and authentic leadership and transformational leadership. And I have one that's, that's called principled leadership. It's just not the principles that you might've been thinking. And so the principles, you still need to be able to, to, to be authentic and you still need to be honest and you still need to treat people right. But I think there's three principles that, that we have uh, pushed that don't seem to be business principles, but when you think about it, they truly are. Humility, mm -hmm. empathy, and vulnerability. Mm. And then I can explain, and then dependability as well, right? And those actually fit nicely into the circle of trust. Humility is being humble enough to recognize that everybody in the room has something to say and everyone has value. Back to the same as we talked about our definition of respect, right? Mm -hmm. So that respect ties really well into humility. Empathy, listening to understand, is very similar to trying to understand where you're coming from, who you are, showing empathy. It's not sympathy, it's empathy. Mm -hmm. Understanding where you're coming from as, as much as I humanly possible. And then vulnerability is a big deal. And that's the whole sharing from experience where that ties in. And here's the thing about vulnerability. I didn't know this growing up. In fact, in my generation, vulnerability was a weakness or thought of as a weakness. And it's just the opposite of that. What I found is that being vulnerable is probably the most attractive quality I can have. Mm, it will attract people to me. It, it has nothing to do with my looks or my wealth or my any of those kind of things. Being vulnerable, being vulnerable with people. If I'm telling you a vulnerable story, you're going to lean in, unless you're one of the five percent of the world, and there is five percent that has antisocial personality disorder, which psychopaths, sociopaths, and narcissists. It doesn't work with them. It just doesn't. They they don't care. Right. But the rest of the world, when you're sharing your story, will lean in to your story. Mm -hmm. So vulnerability is the most attractive quality I can have and should not be feared even in the business world. Yeah. I'm sure you know Brene Brown because she talks a lot about vulnerability. As a matter of fact, I think she wrote a book about it. This is something that, like you said, recently became kind of understood more. In the past, it was considered maybe a weakness. How do people get over the hump of exposing that vulnerability, right? Especially, I guess, for people who have a very strong yeah. facade that they want to maintain, maybe, I don't know, the authority and whatnot. How do they kind of get over the fear of being considered less of an authority? Here, here's how I 
try to explain that to these women are better at this than men. I'm just going to say it out loud, right? Yeah. So women are better at being vulnerable than men are. Men are trying to be strong and protective and all that and think vulnerability is a weakness. And, and here's how I explain it to people like me. Mm-hmm. In this position, do you want power or do you want influence? Influence. Okay. Most think about that. Like those are two different things. Yeah, those are two different things. Mm-hmm. And when they get to it, power is corrupting, and it's and it's and it's it's an ugly kind of a, a, a emotion, right? But influence, I want influence. Well, so I I put the link together between the difference between someone that has power, positional power, authority, and things like that, a bigger hammer, whatever it's going to, whatever power, as opposed to using the softer skills of vulnerability to gain influence. Mm-hmm. The more I'm willing to share with you, the more you're willing to come with me, the more influence I end up having, the better we can do to bet together. Mm-hmm. So if the goal really is to have influence as opposed to just power, vulnerability is the key. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It also reminds me of the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yeah. I think that also ties into what you were saying, right? Trying to be influential is not at all trying to be like powerful and, you know, kind of the old school way of having that authoritative appearance. It's the opposite. It is It is the opposite, but it brings along the things that you get with exercising that power without all the negativity that comes with it. Right, right. So what happens to people in power? Somebody's always trying to overthrow them. Mm-hmm, exactly. What happens when places of power, right? You're mm-hmm. always trying to be overthrown. Somebody, like you, you go to a bar and the bigger guy wants to fight the littler guy, whatever, right? Yep. Or you go into the, the kingdom and the, someone's going to over, overtake the king and take their power away or the dictator or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Influence, it doesn't work like that. Influential people attract other people. Now mm-hmm. we have a group that is not doing it because I have more power. It's but because I'm allowing them to be a part of the process and they feel better about it and therefore they're going to give me more support. Yeah, and I remember there's an analogy in that book which had a really big impression on me. It was talking about why do people love dogs so much? Because dogs are so friendly and they try to make you feel good about yourself and that's why people adore dogs. That's so simple, right? Because you just have to be kind of nice and but also being genuine about that. Wag your tail and be loyal. Pretty simple compliments, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Last couple questions for you. Do you have uh, book recommendations that are either about leadership or influence or just life in general? Yeah, there's there's two that I that I that I make as standards for anybody, and one is called Crucial Conversations. Okay. So a book book called Crucial Conversations, and that and that tells people how to have these difficult, shows people a process on how they can have the difficult conversations. Rather than fight or flight syndrome where you run away or, or you battle into something, there's a different way of having a conversation, talking mm-hmm. about politics and Thanksgiving. We can do that together. So that's a good book. I always come, uh, couple that with, with a book by Edgar Schein called Humble Inquiry. Mm-hmm. The Gentle Art of Asking, Not Telling. Mm. It's just, it's a what, Mr. Dr. Shine's a, he's he's an academic, but he wrote this book in kind of a narrative style. 
and it is just it's brilliant um by putting these two books together stuff so and actually humble inquiry is the first book i ever read cover to cover without just putting it down i just i've never done that in my life i read a chapter at a time that's about all i can handle right but i just read this book it's like oh exactly exactly it kept kept saying that so uh, those would be the first two books that i would start with the third book is one called i thought it was a leader i'm telling <laughs> you the, the the concepts in that book will work yeah they were they they changed my life um and changed my life not just my business my business continues to succeed but my life has gotten so much better yeah. by exercising those principles of humility empathy and vulnerability awesome so last question where can people find more about you it's all kinds of places um the easiest one is to if you just send me an email scott at lead two goals.com that's l-e-a-d the number two goals g-o-a-l-s dot com um Certainly, you could pick up the book on Amazon. I thought I was a leader. Mm -hmm. um, they can do that, and all the contact information is in there. But uh, 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 I've recently started a new uh, gig, which is public speaking. So I'm getting out on the keynote circuit as well. And it, it talks about my journey and, and some of the principles that we've talked about here. So if anyone's looking for a speaker, I'd love to join up, join you. So please yeah. reach out. And that's on your website, right? They can book you, leadtogoals.com? Yeah. Leadtogoals.com is the website. They can mm -hmm. certainly do it there. Um, and and then listen to our podcast. We have a podcast called the CEO Podcast. Okay. Um, and it, it is conversations with, an entrep with entrepreneurs about opportunity, the CEO. Nice. Conversations with entrepreneurs about opportunity. Is that on YouTube, Apple Podcasts? everywhere YouTube, apple if you go if you go to um uh, the ceo podcast.net you can see all the platforms that it's on okay. spotify and apple podcast and youtube and it, it's everywhere okay great all right thank you so much scott this has been a great conversation thanks for sharing i, appre I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you of course